Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to this special emergency episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, I thought I was going to enjoy a relaxing weekend with my family in Wales, but what do I know and what a difference 24 hours makes? In our last episode on Friday, we were reporting on the slow progress of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. That evening came the bombshell news that Evgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner group responding to an alleged attack on its troops by the Russian army had crossed the Rubicon into outright rebellion against the Russian military and, by association, Putin himself. Well, this was flagged up to me on Saturday morning uh, as I got my cup of coffee by a message on Twitter saying, what a shame that Battleground Ukraine has already got out. It's going to miss the news. Well, of course, we've tried to rise to the challenge with this emergency pod to bring you the analysis of that extraordinary last 36 hours. So let's just recap on the extraordinary events uh, that have unfolded. First, as you say, Saul Prigozhin claimed that Russian generals had ordered an airstrike on his fighters in Ukraine and said that a huge number had been killed. Now, whether this was a false flag operation is unclear, but what happened next certainly is not. Prigozhin called for an uprising uh, against Russia's military leaders and promised to, quote, go to the end to stop the Russian leadership's evil, as he put it. He also ordered his troops to march into Russia and secure the vital logistics and command hub at Rostov-on-Don, about 100 kilometers inside the Russian border from Ukraine, saying his men would destroy everything that gets in the way. While they took Rostov without opposition, no one from the Russian army there stood up to him. And from then, uh, the path to Moscow, at least the first stage of it, appeared to be open. Yeah. So what was Putin's response? Well, during Saturday morning, uh, the first thing he did is appear on state television condemning Prigozhin's move as an army mutiny and a stab in the back of Russia that would be harshly dealt with. Tough words. The internal security service, the FSB, opened a criminal case against Prigozhin and declared him a foreign agent. Prigozhin uh, responded by saying that Putin had made a deep mistake when he talked about treason. He added, we are patriots of our motherland. We don't want the country to continue to live in corruption, deceit and bureaucracy. So we waited for the government's response. One of the most respected Russia watchers, Professor Mark Galliotti, claimed that the likely move by Moscow would be to bottle up Prigozhin's force, alleged to be 25,000 strong, but probably closer to 10,000, in Rostov and begin negotiations. In truth, a Wagner flying column of tanks and armoured vehicles, estimated by Reuters to be 5,000 strong, was already well on the way to Moscow up the M4 motorway. So by around midday on Saturday, Prigozhin's men had already taken the city of Voronezh, which is about halfway between Rostov and Moscow. But en route, they were attacked by uh, Russian helicopters, some of which, maybe as many as six, Wagner claims to have shot down as well as a transport plane. But apart from that, there was virtually no opposition at this stage to the advance of Wagner on Moscow. Now, this underlines the point that apart from internal security and the FSB, 
Putin really has no troops that he can deploy to stop Wagner or to any force coming across his border uh, deep penetration like this, or certainly none that he trusts to obey orders. So the advance continued, reaching the border, the very border of the Moscow Oblast, just two hours from the capital. This was about 5 p.m. UK time yesterday, at which point the Moscow authorities declared a state of emergency. Now, what was interesting at this stage, Patrick, as it was unfolding in real time for us, was the reaction of Putin's subordinates, his, his chief lieutenants. I, I think it was quite telling. Only a few, only a handful of senior commanders, including the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov and General Sorovakin, our old friend General Armageddon, who is the deputy commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, only they came out in support of Putin. Even the Belarus Security Council, formerly a puppet of Putin's, released a statement saying they support the war, Russia and Russian unity, but nothing about Putin and the Russian government. So by then, this is around 7 p.m. UK time, as Wagner troops closed to within 150 miles of the capital, uh, another bombshell landed. This was an announcement from Bogosian that he'd ordered his fighters to halt their march on Moscow and return to their field camps to prevent bloodshed, as he put it. Now, the stand-down came after Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian dictator, uh, said he'd brokered a last-minute truce to avoid a Russian civil war. Now, a key element of the deal appears to be that the Kremlin will drop plans to abolish the Wagner military company and bring its fighters under Ministry of Defence Control, that is, fold them into the existing state army. There are also reports in the Russian Kremlin-controlled media that major changes are about to be made to the leadership of the Ministry of Defence, including Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu and the Army Chief of Staff, uh, Valery Gerasimov, of course, two of the arch-enemies of, of uh, Prigozhin, but if they're accurate, that means that uh, Putin's caved in to Prigozhin's demands, which is not a good look. So what was Prigozhin's explanation of why he stopped? Well, he announced on his Telegram channel, they were going to dismantle PMC Wagner. We came out on June 23 to the March of Justice. In a day, we walked to nearly 200 kilometers away from Moscow. In this time, we did not spill a single drop of blood of our fighters. Now the moment came. When blood may spill, that's why we are turning back our convoys and going back to field camps. Now, the deal apparently includes an amnesty from prosecution for both Prigozhin and his men and requires them to withdraw to Belarus. So an extraordinary end to a very extraordinary day. And what happens next? Well, who knows? Only time will tell. But what is not in doubt is that Putin, who at one stage of the crisis is said to have fled from Moscow to St. Petersburg, has suffered a serious and possible fatal loss of prestige. But I suppose the big question is, so why did Prigozhin pull back from the brink when it seemed that power was actually in his grasp? It's extraordinary, and it mystified me yesterday. I have to say, Patrick, I thought the game was up for Putin. The extraordinary thing about Wagner's march was the lack of opposition, as we've already mentioned, apart from that attack by Russian Air Force helicopters. It was as if the Russian army was unwilling to intervene and prepared to stand on the sidelines. That's if there were any Russian troops available to do anything about this. 
And then all of a sudden, Prigozhin tells his men to stand down. So the question is why? And one possible explanation is that people in Moscow or elsewhere who had earlier secretly agreed to support Prigozhin had changed their mind. It may, for example, have been significant that Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov didn't join the coup. And we're also hearing reports that 3,000 Chechen fighters took up positions to defend Moscow on Saturday. But either way, yesterday was a disastrous day for Putin's credibility. Russians admire a strongman. Yesterday, Putin looked anything but. And naturally, uh, the Ukrainians look to take advantage, uh, to exploit this chaos by launching a series of counterattacks across the front. Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar uh, said an offensive was launched near a group of villages around Bakhmut. In all those areas, she said, we have made advances. There are other unconfirmed reports which suggest that Ukrainian forces have actually crossed the Dnipro near Kherson. And we've had a response from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pablo Kazan, who you've heard several times on the podcast, who was recently promoted to chief of the Ukrainian Reserve Army's drone capability. Now, he told Saul, the rebellion of the private army against the state army could be the beginning of the collapse of the dictatorship and Russia as a country in particular. So he's confirming uh, what uh, was said about the the clashes between Wagner and the uh, Russian regular forces. He says that Wagner shot down six helicopters and a plane whose identification number was IL-18, which seems to fix it pretty, uh, pretty accurately. He goes on, internal competition for resources is intensifying in Russia due to sanctions and the war in Ukraine. These events show that the continuation of the war means an increase in Russian losses on the battlefield and internal conflicts, while Russia's economy is currently mobilized exclusively for the war. Uh, now, he makes a point, which I've also heard from Askol Kruchelnitsky, that as, as well as obviously seeing this as an opportunity, the Ukrainians are alarmed that with Putin backed into a corner, the potential for escalation is is very sharp. Everyone saying, look, you know, Putin was willing to blow up the Kekovka Dam. So, you know, in order to try and sort of get a grip on the situation or to up the ante, you know, he may well be looking now to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We've spoken about this many times in the podcast. It's potential to be used as a kind of uh, a sort of improvised nuclear bomb, essentially. Yes. And the uh, interesting thing that Lieutenant Colonel Pablo Kazan also confirms it are the casualties. And we've got some more detail, interesting enough, from the latest assessment uh, from the Institute for the Study of War. That's the Washington, D.C. think tank that we think is one of the most reliable sources of information on the conflict. Uh, and they suggest that Wagner forces may have shot down up to seven helicopters. That's, that's even more than uh, Colonel Kazan uh, suspects. And it goes into detail. Three MI-8 electronic warfare helicopters, one MI-8 helicopter, one KA-52 alligator. Patrick mentioned those before. One MI-35 helicopter, one MI-28. And also, and this is the other one you were mentioning, Patrick, an AN-26 transport plane. And how many people were on that plane? We don't know. But ISW thinks at least 13 pilots and airmen were killed as a result of these clashes. And it describes it as one of the single deadliest days for the Russian Air Force of the war in Ukraine to date. Uh, yeah, and the ISW goes on to say that the Kremlin, I'm quoting here, now faces a deeply unstable equilibrium. The Lukashenko-negotiated deal is a short-term fix, not a long-term solution, and Prigozhin's rebellion 
exposed severe weaknesses in the Kremlin and the Russian MOD, the most obvious being the paucity of defences between the Ukrainian border and Moscow. If, for example, Ukrainian forces felt able to attack into Russia, they would not face much opposition, it seems. Another point to make, of course, is that with uh, Wagner basically out of the picture, whatever you think about them, they were actually an effective, one of the more, probably the most effective fighting force left of the Russians. With them out of the game, uh, you are really faced with a, a pretty sort of mediocre bunch of units, I think, now defending the, the line. Now, needless to say, Patrick, there's been the usual chatter on social media about possible conspiracy, that this was all a put-up job by the Kremlin. Well, uh, I dismiss the speculation, as does the ISW, as absurd. And the ISW adds a really interesting assessment overall. It's not being drawn. It won't be drawn into, you know, is this the end of Putin? It's not going that far. But it is assessing the sort of cracks that are beginning to appear. And this is why. Uh, They write, the imagery of Putin appearing on national television to call for the end of an armed rebellion and warning of a repeat of the 1917 revolution, and then requiring mediation from a foreign leader to resolve the rebellion, will have a lasting impact. In particular, it exposes the weakness of the Russian security services and demonstrates Putin's inability to use his forces in a timely manner to repel an internal threat and further erodes his monopoly on force. They go on to write, Prigozhin's rapid drive towards Moscow ridiculed much of the Russian regular forces. Wagner's drive also showcases the degradation of Russia's military reserves, which are almost entirely committed in fighting in Ukraine. Finally, the Kremlin's apparent surprise at Prigozhin's move does not reflect well on Russia's domestic intelligence service, the FSB. Okay, well, I'm just going to sum up what uh, I think all this tells me, Saul, uh, about the Russian situation at the moment. Um, Of course, we can't predict what's going to happen, but I think we can be reasonably sure about what this apparently failed putsch has changed. I say apparently because I think it may have set in chain a series of the very events that Prigozhin was hoping for. One, it's a massive blow to the standing, such as it was, of his arch enemies, Shoigu and Gerasimov, and the existing military hierarchy. And that in turn means, uh, as we've said, that Putin's authority is very, very dangerously undermined. He backed Prigozhin, remember. He's his man. Prigozhin is his creation. He built him up. He allowed him to prosper in the first place. And without uh, Putin's patronage, Prigozhin would be nothing. Now, why did he do this? This is something we don't look at very often. But the reason, as far as I see it, was to create from Wagner, a sort of Praetorian guard, you know, to protect him from any challenge from the military as a bulwark, if you like, against a coup. And that was the same reason, actually, that he kept Shoigu and Gerasimov in place for so long. This is referenced, by the way, in this week's big interview with Alan Phillips, recorded before the event, but still making some very interesting points in these areas. So he kept them in their jobs, even though it was clear since the beginning of the war, uh, and even before possibly, that the military they presided over was corrupt and shambolic. Now, this probably all seemed very clever to Putin at the time, but it it has really backfired big time. So his authority is very, very badly damaged. He can count on the FSB maybe for the moment, but who knows what's going on behind the scenes. And this reliance on Lukashenko. Now, you know, a, a few days ago, Lukashenko was a loyal henchman, very much a junior partner, a bit of a thug, 
it seemed, took his orders unquestioningly. You know, he's told you're going to have nukes in on your territory. He just says, yes, boss. Uh, and now the goon has saved the boss's bacon. So, you know, terrible kind of reversal of roles. Finally, I'd just like to say, obviously, this is going to be a massive blow to, to the morale of the Russian troops. I mean, there you are, sitting on the front line, meant to spill your blood any day now, any hour now, in defense of Mother Russia. And then the bosses are all basically engaged in this sort of titanic power struggle. Your comrades behind the lines have run away as soon as the Wagner troops turn up. Why on earth would you actually stay in your position and fight to the death? Now, that's enough about Russia. What about Ukraine? Saw so a huge boost for them, wouldn't you say? Well, they'll be thinking a lot of the same things you've just been outlining in relation to the Russian army. Of course, nothing changes for them specifically apart from the opportunity to make their counteroffensive count. We know from some of the reports yesterday, Patrick, that actually Ukrainian armor is beginning to mass. That's Ukrainian armor that has not been used yet. There is, there were some reports that, and we may not hear them verified for two or three days that Ukrainian troops have already got across the Dnipro River and are advancing. Again, unconfirmed reports. But the broader picture will be that this increased massing of troops, and we've reported in our last few pods that the major blow of the counteroffensive hasn't taken place. Well, it may, as a result of events in Russia, take place sooner rather than later, because the assumption will be among the Ukrainians, as we've already heard from Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Kazan, that this could be the beginning of the end for the Russians, the collapse of, of not only their army, but possibly Russia itself. That's maybe going a little bit too far at this stage. But they are going to be hugely cheered by this, Patrick, at a time when Russia, even while the mutiny was underway, was still sending, you know, 30, 40 missiles into Ukraine, killing civilians. There will be a belief among Ukrainians, a, a, a renewed belief that their counteroffensive can make a real difference. And as you say, Patrick, the chances of those Russian units standing to fight when they know that, you know, in their rear areas, there has been and might be again mutiny uh, is very doubtful. And the last point to make is a historical parallel, of course, and, and this really relates to Russia and the points you've been making. Um, in 1917, the mutinies began not in the front line, of course, they began in rear areas, as almost always the case, same in the French army uh, in 1917. And the result of the mutinies in Russia, of course, was to eventually lead to the inability of, of units to fight the war and the collapse of the war effort. So we'll just have to wait and see what's going to happen. But this will have hugely cheered our friends in Ukraine as it has us. Well, that's all we have time for on this emergency episode. Rest assured, we'll be monitoring events over the next few days and we'll schedule more pods as and when we think they're necessary. If they aren't, we'll be back on Wednesday for the latest big interview, as I said, with Alan Phillips, great Russia expert who speaks uh, about the background to much of what we're talking about today. And also on Friday, when we'll bring you the news and analysis and answer listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.